All right, Jay. So Sebastian Shaw's assistant, Tessa, was sage all the time, and she was a spy for Xavier? No and yes, respectively. She was spying for Xavier the whole time, but she didn't actually get the codename Sage until afterwards. Did she ever end up going back to the Hellfire Club? She did, much later on, after Shaw took control of the club back again, again. Sage helped overthrow him and then mentored his replacement as uh, Lord Cardinal. Shaw's replacement. So what, Emma Frost? Sunspot. What?! I'm Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 327 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the most extreme teens of all, who are, I don't know, they're, they've been kind of less extreme, but there's so much punching in this arc that I feel like that makes them a little more extreme. Are they actually still teens? I sort of thought they were in their early 20s by now. They probably are, actually, yeah. I mean, I get the impression that in the mid-90s, Generation X is supposed to replace the actual teenagers, and yeah, these are your young people, which honestly would make the X-Men only very slightly older than X-Force, since the X-Men seem to be perpetually in their mid-to-late 20s. It's very silly. Periodically, we get a question that's like, how does Marvel time work? And the answer is, eh... It doesn't. It contradicts itself constantly, and even if it didn't, it wouldn't make any goddamn sense. Franklin Richards will, well, I would say forever be a Moppet, but no, now he's a mopey teenager, so I guess he's not a Moppet anymore. I think Artie and Leech are still pretty Moppety, though. The point is, Marvel time is a mess. Now, what's X-Force been up to aside from young adulthood? Well, the biggest change recently is that after a very brief status quo of them hanging out in a stolen murder world base under New York and having alter egos, now they're operating out of the X-Mansion, which makes them similar to the X-Men in another way. Not only are they almost the same age, but they're probably sharing bathrooms. At the mansion, there's been some ongoing, complicated drama involving Tabitha Smith, that's Boom Boom or Boomers, attempted friendship with Sabretooth, which culminated in his escape. She's pretty bummed about that whole thing, having used him as a sort of surrogate father figure in an effort to possibly process or actively not process her own relationship with her abusive father. It was a whole thing. Then there's Sunspot. Sunspot was possessed or otherwise out of his mind, taken over by the Persona Rainfire. Now, we'll learn later that Rainfire was a clone, but as far as we know now, that was the real Bobby DeCosto, who is only now back to at least something close to his normal state. He's still unable to return to human form from his sunspot form, but other than that, he pretty much seems to be firing on all cylinders. It probably helps that his outfit, if you look at it closely, is essentially a yellow version of the outfit worn by the main character of Zardoz. That has to have been deliberate on his part. I hope so, but once again, Sunspot does not have the mustache of a man he's attempting to emulate. Poor kid. He tries. He tries. Speaking of uh, follicular sadness, Warpath, he, he cut all his hair off. Now he's got a buzz cut. That, that makes me sad. So we'll learn later that this was apparently an attempt to give himself a more distinct identity from his, uh, from his brother John. Uh, I have feelings about that. We'll, we'll talk about that later. It's complicated. 
Now, Shatterstar still has his glorious long hair, but he has lost some of the pep in his step since Richter quit the team, uh, which he did because it turned out Cable was still a telepath, and Richter is not down with that. I mean, he was for a while, but then there was a new writer, and all of a sudden he wasn't. These things happen. I feel like obligatory heterosexuality had something to do with that choice. I have no idea. Also, Siren and Caliban are on the team. They've been up to less, but they're rad too. We like them. Caliban is enormous. He's still enormous. I mean, he's been enormous for a long time, but it's still always a little bit surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Siren had her memories messed with recently. That'll be relevant later, but not so much now. Now, our main villain this arc is the one and only Sebastian Shaw. You heard that right. Sebastian, not Shinobi. He's back. Uh, Sebastian, last we saw, was killed by his, his much less effective son, but then he got better and met up with Holocaust, a refugee from the Age of Apocalypse, who fell to Earth via a brief detour on Asteroid M. Yes, indeed. And that brings us to X-Force number 49, Target X-Force. This issue is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Andy Lanning, Mark Morales, and Vince Russell, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Comacraft. And I think that we can just let Sebastian Shaw, our big bad, read us in. What is mine is mine. I did not build Shaw Industries up from nothing and into a worldwide conglomerate to have it taken from me. I did not wrest control of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club and become the undisputed Black King to allow another to succeed me. Last, and perhaps most important, I did not intend to turn over any of my wealth or power to my impertinent son, Shinobi Shaw. So he murdered me. What my son does not know... What the entire world will soon learn is that he failed, and the price of his betrayal will be astronomical. So to this end, Shaw has teamed up with two allies. He has working with him, first of all, Tessa, the, the telepath who's been pretty much at his side through his entire stint on the Hellfire Club, and he's got Holocaust, uh, who he, he describes as, as going by, you know, the presumptuous name Holocaust. And Shaw doesn't really believe Holocaust's story about where he comes from, but he does know that he's tremendously destructive, and that's, that's enough for him. Okay, so a couple things here. First off, Sebastian just told us about how Shinobi, his son, attempted to kill him, right? That was in X-Factor number 67, and in that, Shinobi fated his hand into Sebastian's heart to stop said heart, and then blew up the building Sebastian was in. And somehow, after those specific injuries, the only scar that Shaw has is one of those cool villain scars that goes right over one of his eyes. Is that just because he's so villainous that the very tropes of the universe have rearranged themselves in his orbit? Yeah. Okay, well, that's fine then. Uh, well done, Sebastian Shaw, you jerk. I do kind of miss his ponytail, though. I mean, I guess, I guess that makes sense because the building he was in blew up and presumably burned it off, but he looked really rad with that ponytail that was always tied in that cute little bow. Yeah, maybe maybe he got rid of it because he felt like his, his current ally would probably make fun of it. Maybe, but it's Sebastian. He wouldn't give a shit. He would just, like, get punched a lot, and that would make him stronger, and then he would punch very hard. No, no, that's that's a good point. Man, I, I don't know. I it, it is a mystery for the ages. Shinobi did not 
successfully assassinate his father, but he did assassinate his father's ponytail. That's even worse. Man, Shinobi, you jerk. Speaking of Shinobi, the last time we saw him in the podcast was Spider-Man Team-Up number one, where he was trying to kill, well, protect technically, J. Jonah Jameson, and Tessa was working with him. Now we see Tessa working with Sebastian again. Do you think after that story, Tessa was just utterly sick of Shinobi's bullshit and just walked off? I mean, I think Tessa has her own thing going on and much, much, much more complicated motivations than we get to know about here, or really pretty much at any point. So there's that. But yeah, we, we, can, we can run with that if you want to. Okay, I, I think I do. And then the third member of this villainous triumvirate. Holocaust. So he's working with Sebastian because Sebastian gave him new containment armor, so he wasn't just a flaming skeleton, right? I mean, first of all, you say just a flaming skeleton, like there's anything wrong with that. It's like the one thing that wasn't stupid about Holocaust was that he was a flaming skeleton. Flaming skeletons are awesome. Maybe he just felt naked without being in a big transparent set of power armor. I mean, he's still pretty naked. He's just, you know, got a carapace. Like, he's he's definitely still just, like, swinging it all out there. Oh, it's true. It's true. All those bones, each one more obscenely visible than the last. But I do wish that Holocaust's new power armor didn't look basically just like his old power armor. The old armor from the Age of Apocalypse, that was made by Dark Beast, as I recall. And this armor is made by Sebastian Shaw, and I think it would have been kind of a cool touch if it had more of a Hellfire Club feel to it, or at least a Sentinel feel, you know? I mean, the Hellfire Club was funding the Sentinel program way back when. Well, I assumed that Holocaust had provided him with the plans, or at least a substantial amount of guidance in making it. That may be true, yeah. And we do know that Holocaust, as much as he keeps referencing the status quo of the Age of Apocalypse, even though he's in a new reality, he's a kind of status quo-oriented guy. So yeah, I can see him wanting a taste of home. And he continues, you know, his making himself at home by being a big old jerk and gratuitously murdering a Hellfire goon, goon named Stansfield, whose colleague is really sad to lose him. And I, I just, it, it's a good touch. Poor Stansfield. You had the misfortune of having a name and hanging out near a villain. That never goes well in X-Men. I mean, I would say it never goes well to be a Hellfire guard with a name, but obviously Harvey and Janet are still kicking, so... They're fine. They're having great family vacations off in, like, you know, Bermuda or something right now. Godspeed, Harvey and Janet. Mm-hmm. I wish you well. Do you think our listeners remember them? I don't know. I mean, I remember them. They haven't really come up in a while. That's the thing. Like, Hellfire Club guards are so seldom interesting, and so it's always felt a little forced to try to work Harvey and Janet in, and part of it, you know, it's like how... All the characters, or almost all the characters at the end of Peter David's second X-Factor run got really fitting endings, and so it was a little sad when each of them inevitably came back. I want to give Harvey and Janet peace. I want them to just be able to retire far away from super-powered bullshit. No, they, they deserve a happy, happy, quiet life outside of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, don't be in the Marvel Universe. It goes poorly for everyone. And among the folks for whom things are about to go very poorly are the members of X-Force, because one of the things that... Having Tessa on his side does for Sebastian Shaw is give him a telepath. It gives him a means to mind control people. So he and Holocaust are going to go around and just collect all of the team members. He nabs Tabitha Smith, Boomer, during a poignant reunion with her dad, who stopped drinking and seems to be taking responsibility for all the shit he did when she was growing up, 
until Holocaust firebombs his trailer. Ain't that always the way? Holocaust nabs Caliban and Sunspot in the Morlock tunnels. Uh, Caliban likes visiting now and then. Sunspot happens to come along with him. Sunspot, incidentally, is currently stuck in his powered-up form, although he mentions running out of power in the dark without sunlight, which raises some questions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's clear that he's not super big on being stuck in his silhouette, shiny energy going everywhere form, but could he just hang out in the dark for a long time and then he'd just be fine? I'm I'm not sure. It could be that he maintains his his powered up appearance even if he can't fly or necessarily have the attendant powers. Oh, okay. So uh all the bang, none of the buck, or I guess all the bark, none of the bite. But that raises another question, and Jay, you're a Cyclops expert. Couldn't Scott, with his solar-powered optic blast, just hang out in the dark for a really long time and thus not have to worry about the awesome power of his eyes and having to be in control all the time? He could, but it would require literally never being exposed to sunlight or, as I understand it, any of a number of other types of energy or possibly ambient radiation. So he's lost his optic blasts a few times because of being out of the sun for too long. But first of all, again, we know that sunlight isn't the only thing that can power them. We know it takes relatively little sunlight to power them. And we also know that humans generally don't do super well entirely out of the sun for their entire lives. I know, I just feel like he could maybe take a week or something and then be able to make out with Jean without being worried about blowing her face off. I mean, you know, probably pretty depressed by that point, but... Yeah, yeah, it's a SAD, Summer's Affective Disorder. Well, that that just goes with the territory entirely. That's entirely weather-independent. Fair. So, let's see, going on, uh... Progressing through our kidnappings, Shaw grabs Warpath and Siren while they're out shopping. This is also where we get the explanation of Warpath's haircut, that he's specifically done it to live less in the shadow of of his brother. So I can see him changing his costume to be something less specifically Apache for that reason, but I kind of feel like he could change his look perhaps a little less thoroughly. Like, he doesn't have to abandon all the markings of his heritage. He could just stop wearing a red and blue, very Apache-looking outfit. So, I don't know. I mean, fair enough. Like, I understand he wants to really make a a thorough cutoff from John's legacy. I think what it comes down to is I'm just really upset that some of the best long hair on a man in 90s comics is now gone. I mean, that and the fact that we only ever see Banshees in flashbacks. Oh, Banshee's amazing spy ponytail. Yeah. Speaking of ponytails, I believe that just leaves us with Shatterstar, who is grabbed up, I assume, by Holocaust based on the reaction of the character who can see him, which we, the readers, can't, um, as he is interrupting a gay bashing. Yeah, a bunch of skinheads are uh, beating the hell out of a a, a gay dude. Interestingly, one of the skinheads has a peace sign tattoo, which, uh, is that ironic, or what's going on there? I got nothing. So you mentioned earlier, I think largely facetiously, that uh, one of the reasons Richter might have left the book was because people weren't allowed to be gay in a comic. This scene does kind of remind me, though, like, it's interesting that Shatterstar specifically is the one that interrupts this hate crime. I mean, I'm going to be a little bit dismal here and say, well, yeah, victims are allowed to be gay in X-Men comics. We've seen that for a long time. That's a really good point. Now I'm a little depressed. Well, it's okay. At least Shatterstar and Richter will get to make out later once comics are a bit less oppressive and restrictive at least once at least once which 
Uh, you know, more in the future. We can we can hope for more in the future. Comics are way gayer these days, thankfully. On a happier note, we do get a wrap-up monologue from Sebastian Shaw, who is packing in as much as possible to make up for his time out of the game. That's the worst thing about being temporarily dead as a villain in comics. You just can't villainously gloat as much. They have all forgotten. They all thought I could die so easily. That they could take what I so carefully built up over a lifetime. And there, in that cold wasteland, I made a vow as I lay dying. Xavier, the X-Men, the Hellfire Club, Shinobi. They will all learn. Slowly. Painfully. What is mine is mine. And what is theirs is mine. On the one hand, it seems a little weird that Sebastian's going after one of the X-teams he has the least history with for his big comeback. On the other hand, that's such a big speech that I'm inclined to just let him go for it. Yeah, there's room in his vengeance plan for everybody. That's right. And that brings us to X-Force number 50, Target Cable. Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Bud LaRosa, Mark Morales, and Jesse Delperdang, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And as a number 50... You might have guessed, this is indeed a double-sized issue, it does indeed have a double gatefold cover, and that cover is indeed cardstock with foil accents. But was it holographic? Sadly, no. Lenticular? Uh, no, no, just, just foil stamped. Faintly alive? I think so. Interestingly enough, the Marvel Unlimited digital version of the comic is the Liefeld variant of the cover rather than the actual cover. That's pretty unusual, as I understand it. It really varies from book to book from what I've seen. So this being an anniversary issue, it opens with special thanks. Thanking Chris Claremont, Bob McCloud, Rob Liefeld, Fabian Nacieza, and all who came before. And let's talk about this a little. Because on the one hand, yes, those four creators were the writer and penciler behind, respectively, New Mutants number 1 and X-Force number 1, so, okay. On the other hand, where the fuck is Louise Simonson? Where the fuck is Louise Simonson? Like, I know she didn't work on a number 1 of either book, but she wrote almost half of New Mutants. And she wrote the X-Factor issues that came up with characters like Boom Boom and Richter, who were central to X-Force. And, and New Mutants, for that matter. So, that really seems unfortunate. Like, I get it. Where do you draw the line? Like, should you include, say, Bill Sienkiewicz, since he was a big deal with New Mutants? And then if you include him, why do you not include other artists? But come on, Louise Simonson is one of the central creators of so many of these characters. I mean, she was the co-creator of Cable. Jeez. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Louise Simonson, I will always have your back. I'm sad you weren't thanked in this issue. And so, we... Miles Stokes and Jay Edidin will personally thank you. Thank you. Anyway, as far as the story, this one's kind of fun. It's kind of weird, but it's kind of fun. We open with this phenomenal gearing up montage of our six members of X-Force. You know, all of their purple and yellow gear being clicked and snapped and pulled on. And that leads into this dramatic hero group shot with little captions about each character's powers and nature. And I have to say, like... Seeing all the characters in a montage like this as a team with the coordinated but still unique purple and yellow costumes, 
they look really freaking cool. I am, I've become a very big fan of this era's purple and yellow look. They're good costumes. They are. And these characters, in their badass gearing up state, are getting ready for a mission from Sebastian Shaw, who apparently is their mentor, their, their leader, and he always has been. Of course, Miles, don't you remember? I do remember the previous 49 issues of X-Force, yeah, led by Sebastian Shaw. And that's because you, like this team, have had your memory changed by Tessa. Indeed I have. I do have to wonder, though, why is the team still called X-Force? I mean, they're working for Shaw now. At least they could be Hellfire Force, or, I don't know, the Shawdies? No, that's a terrible plan, not that. I mean, I assume it's because when you're overwriting someone's mind... The more details you can leave in place, the less work you have to do. I suppose. It does remind me actually a lot of the last time some of these characters, well, maybe just one of these characters, maybe none of these characters? Anyway, the New Mutants had their minds overwritten to be part of a different team, which was after Secret Wars 2 when they died, and Emma Frost brought them onto the Hellions and made them think they'd always been there. I believe Sunspot was around for that. I can never remember when he was gone for Fallen Angels. Yeah, likewise. Anyway, their newest mission, for the guy who's totally always been their boss, is to kill a guy named Cable. Who? Apparently they've heard of him, and they're very excited, they're high-fiving, and giving each other fist bumps and stuff, and something I like about Adam Polina's art is he's really good at conveying youthful enthusiasm, to the point where these yeah. characters actually come off as a lot younger than they are, which... I kind of like for this scene, it makes it clear how little agency they have under Shaw. Agreed. They're very much simplified versions of themselves, and that comes across beautifully in, in the art, and, and I think pretty well in the writing as, as well. I would agree, yeah. Tessa's kind of worried, though. I mean, yes, she has successfully brainwashed six extreme non-teens, but she reminds Shaw she's not an experienced telepath, and that three of these kids have already had their minds messed with, so this may not go well. So, so presumably telepathy sort of works like photocopies of photocopies, where the, the, you know, the mind overwrites get less and less well-realized. Yeah, exactly. We have a uh, paper jam siren over on one end or something. Aww. But I was thinking about whose minds have been messed with. Like, okay, we know Sunspot's mind has been very much messed with by that whole rainfire thing that the comic has still not explained to us. We know that Siren had her mind messed with while she was in an institution where Deadpool still is. That'll become relevant pretty soon. And I was thinking about the third one. I mean, Caliban definitely had his mind mess with, messed with when he became Apocalypse's horseman Death, but that's pretty much undone. I guess it must be talking about Shatterstar. Like, we're about to get this big retcon about how he's really just a guy named Ben Gavidra that will eventually be ignored. Well, it'll be sort of folded in and or re-retconned. Shatterstar at this point is is kind of baffling and impossible. And I assume, therefore, that it must be him just because that's kind of what we're, we're led to believe further about him in the next issue. But I really don't know. It's never made entirely clear. It's true. It's true. Speaking of characters with unclear pasts, though, okay, we've alluded to Tessa having her own thing going on, and of course, if you're familiar with her and her current identity as Sage, you'll know that this entire time she's been working undercover in the Hellfire Club for Xavier. But something as more about her is revealed that will also become clear is just how many freaking powers she has. 
it's almost ridiculous. Like, okay, she's a telepath, apparently powerful enough to brainwash six strong-willed people simultaneously. She's also essentially a living computer with perfect recall, multitasking, she can learn skills without practice, she can perceive DNA and jumpstart it to enhance or unleash new powers, and she's got, quote, complete control over her personal physiology, end quote. So basically, she can do whatever the plot requires. Exactly. She's like M over in Generation X, but uh, less complicated, uh, I guess. I don't know. I mean, M has a pretty standard superhero power set. Tessa really, really does just feel like an author device. She does, and honestly, the more she becomes a central character, the more that becomes the case. Don't get me wrong, I really like Sage as a character, but it's so clear that she was the favorite of multiple writers, especially Claremont. Like, she just keeps getting to be more and more and more badass. Well, and more and more and more effective. It's not just that she's always, you know, the coolest person in the room or the most powerful. She's an extremely efficient means of progressing the plot when it's stalled. Thanks, Sage, for being a narrative device. She has her moments. And again, she's she's been written well. She's got a personality. It's just that she's also an incredibly, incredibly good narrative device. Jay, do you have a favorite Sage story? Hmm, let me think. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men. Oh yeah, she's great in that. That series is great in general. I also really like the character as she's portrayed in The Gifted. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, and I appreciate that just like in the comic, she wears a lot of tops that are off one shoulder, because that's apparently a sage thing. That's, you know, personal preference. Yeah, maybe one of her shoulders gets, like, way warmer than the other. Maybe it's part of her power set. Probably. Oh, maybe that's, like, where her processor is and it gets overheated? Oh, yeah, so it's either that or a big bulky heat sink sticking out of one shoulder. Yeah, which is more of a Shatterstar look. True. If I had to pick a favorite Sage story, I'm actually very fond of Murder at the Mansion. Uh, that's part of Grant Morrison's X-Men run, where she and Bishop are investigating Emma Frost's apparent murder. That's a fun one. Cops, man. Cops. Meanwhile, in Manhattan, Cable and Domino are tracking their missing team because, geez, you travel through time and head to Genosha a little bit, and you come back and everybody's gone. What the hell? Well, Sebastian Shaw the hell. Apparently. And sure enough, X-Force finds Cable and Domino before Cable and Domino find X-Force, and they attack. And, like, they're really effective. They're very well trained as a team. It does make me wonder, though, is this extra training that Shaw gave them, or is this just the fact that they were very well trained by Cable, and now Cable happens to be their target? Oh, I assumed the latter. Yeah, Shaw's—I mean, he's not lazy so much as he's an opportunist. He's not a leader. At least not in the sense that Cable is. No, if he was a leader, he would have given the team a better name. But not the Shoddies. That would be a terrible name. Anyway, X-Force is kicking all kinds of ass, so Cable and Domino, of course, get sneaky. Caliban is not sneaky, what with his The Shining-esque, Here's Caliban! As he X-Factors his way through an elevator door while chasing them. There are a lot of things that justify a splash page. I'm going to go ahead and say that's not one of them. I think it could. I mean, check this out. So Caliban originally was on X-Factor, right? Like, he was actually a member of X-Factor. And he was so grateful for his time with them, and so I can see it being a big deal that as a former member of X-Factor, he still remembers that you make your own doors. You don't find them. 
After Shatterstar slightly runs Domino through, Cable TK whammy Shatterstar right in the oft-referenced rib injury from Cable number 22, and follows that up by breaking through to Sunspot by using their mental connection of when Cable had to telepathically de-rainfire Bobby. We should clarify that when Miles says breaking through to Sunspot, he doesn't mean, like, stabbing through Shatterstar to Sunspot. He means, you know, getting through to him in the, the hey kid, let's rap sense. Although stabbing through Shatterstar to get to somebody is a time-honored tradition. Do you remember that panel in Late New Mutants that was ripped off of Frank Miller's Ronin completely where Shatterstar did that to himself? Everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little about the Rainfire thing, because... We know that Rainfire, the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, the second leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, was actually Sunspot. And now we found out that apparently Rainfire was something possessing Sunspot, and Cable used a telepathy to fix that, which is why Bobby has Ascani teachings in his brain. But what do you think was intended here? Like, Because we haven't gotten the retcon yet that Rainfire was a clone, and clearly this isn't the original intent, or Rainfire was just an evil version of Bobby himself— I think that this has to be a left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing situation. Rainfire seemed like someone different, so the shortest, most expedient explanation was possessed. This is, like, there's there's nothing about how Rainfire was handled post-event that makes me think that there was any clear communication about his nature or that it was particularly thought out. So I am particularly reluctant to guess at at narrative intent here, just because I don't think there was very much. That could be, but it at least does have the effect of uh, Bobby becoming more and more Ascani-esque. A lot of his speech bubbles are in the Ascani language, which looks actually kind of like dupes language from Ecstatics. Uh, we didn't bother translating these because we are bums. Also, I'm not sure if anybody ever made an Ascani translator. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some kind of, some kind of guide to it. I, I assume it's just an alphabet cipher. Yeah, probably. Anyway, as the rest of X-Force comes to finish Cable off, he telepathically blasts memories of the team's new mutant days at them. Which is interesting, because the only one of them that was really a new mutant for very long was Sunspot. Maybe it's not memories of the new mutant days. Maybe it's memories of the new mutant comics and how good they were. Oh, that could be... Hey, team, do you remember that time we read the Claremonts and Cavett run of New Mutants and it was really good, and then we followed it up with the Simons and Blevins run, which is also really good and underappreciated and probably should have been credited in, in this arc? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Uh, stop being brainwashed, please. You know, if anything is gonna take a group of, of disaffected young adults back to their sense of wonder... And, you know, they're really their belief in the power of comics to kind of speak to them as a medium and as, as stories. It's going to be that run. I think so. But this is interesting because clearly this is number 50 of X-Force, so it's meant to be kind of a, a culmination of everything that's come before. And that's hard to do when you only have one and a half members, Sunspot and Kinda Boom Boom, who have been around as part of the team for very long at all. Like, I feel like it's appropriate still to reference the team's history, but it just comes off as a little odd that most of the team isn't on it anymore it is yeah it's a strange choice and cable kind of addresses that as as he tells the team telepathically i can fill your heads with memories and remind you of who and what it took to build this team but in the end only you can win today what shaw or anybody else for that matter doesn't know 
is that I didn't train you to be soldiers who put on uniforms and follow orders. You are unique in that you are drawn together out of need, whether for self-respect or friendship. Together, you have a chance to find something we have all lost elsewhere in the world. I can restore the memories, kids, but only you can remember what you truly are. And that's it. After that statement of purpose of the team and the book, everybody's back to themselves and they walk off into the sunrise. I noticed that you mentioned the ship of Theseus paradox in your, your notes, and I, I love that so many people are, are learning that from WandaVision. Yeah, uh, I guess the series is pretty recent, so we shouldn't really go into detail, but um, that was a great conversation in that show. I mean, I feel like the canon ship of Theseus is usually Medea. <laughs> nice. So I gotta ask, this is an anniversary issue, but does it seem to you like an X-Force anniversary issue or more of a Cable anniversary issue? I'm on the fence. It's very Cable-centric, but it's also very much X-Force through Cable's eyes. Yeah, it's almost like he's our audience surrogate, like he's our window into the book, and that's unusual, but I think it kind of works. Yeah, I don't ten generally tend to think of Cable as an audience surrogate. You know, Kitty Pride, Jubilee, Nathan Christopher Dayspring Ascani Sun Summers. I mean, maybe during the days when he was being dragged around in a big telepathic bubble by X-Factor. Uh, our bouncing baby boy. I miss those days. And that brings us to X-Force number 51, Reflections in the Night. This is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Luciano Lima, inked by Chad Hunt, Robert Jones, Robert Quiano, and Vince Russell, colored by Tom Vincent, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And it is mostly about Tabitha Smith, Boom Boom, or Boomer these days, and she is having a very, very, very rough time. First of all, Bishop is investigating Sabretooth's breakout, and he has figured out that, in fact, Tabitha has lied about how it happened. Because, as we know, Sabretooth got her angry enough that she, she threw a time bomb and busted him out of his restraints. She is telling everyone that he broke out on his own. I really appreciate here that Cable is yelling at Bishop about how, no, Tabitha said she didn't help Sabretooth escape. I like that Cable's wrong here. I like that he's so invested in his team and his team as a family that he's not seeing things as objectively as he would like to think that he sees the world. And Storm points out that his defensiveness about Bishop's suspicions might make it worth considering that maybe he subconsciously shares them. Does this make you think of another Bishop-Cable interaction later? I mean, if you're talking about the stuff where he was chasing Cable and Hope through time wiping out entire civilizations, this is on a real different scale. Different scale, yeah, but once again we have Cable as uh, the more warmly emotional character and Bishop as the more coldly objective, he thinks, character. Man, I love the Cable series of that era where Cable's taking care of Hope, but I hate the character assassination of Bishop in it. Yeah. So, but, but he is not the character who is getting assassinated today. No one's actually getting assassinated today, I just kind of wanted to say that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, back to back to Tabby, back to Boomer. Her dad is in the hospital in serious condition after Holocaust interrupted the mid-reconciliation. So she is doing what any reasonable young adult would do mid-crisis, which is burning her stuff, giving herself an extreme haircut, and changing her codename from Boomer to Meltdown, the latter presumably in homage to the fantastic and often forgotten miniseries. There was a character named Meltdown in that miniseries. Her outfit doesn't look much like his, though. 
No, but you know, it's, it's, it's a reasonably generically good name. I could see it working. She's not the only one who is having a rough day though. There is a lot of stuff going on with the rest of the team and they're just, they're generally just not having a great time. In the infirmary, Beast is trying to understand what the hell is going on with Shatterstar's DNA and general memories and origin, and failing completely. Shatterstar has been in the infirmary for his rib injuries so much in this series. He doesn't actually have a rib cage anymore. No! I mean, I'd imagine he didn't after his first appearance when he ran himself through with the sword, ripping off that panel of Ronin. He's just like a tube full of organs. With fantastic hair. Siren has broken the windows of her room by screaming in her sleep. She's finally awoken by Gambit, who has swung in after once again lurking on the roof, this time, however, in pants. And I gotta ask you something, Miles, because this has been bugging me. When you read his dialogue, do you ever imagine it in, in like, the voice of Nestor Carbonell as Batman well? On a roof? Of course. Exactly! Soccer mummies, they are my only weakness. Like, it's straight-up Gambit. Absolutely. Man, that live-action Tick series was so freaking good. Like, I'm sad that it bombed so ridiculously hard that it is now officially underground, but it was phenomenal. I don't even know how many times we watched those episodes back in the day. Also, the source of, of the title of, I, I think, our saddest episode... <laughs> Even horses? Even horses. Even potatoes. Even potatoes. Warpath is running off to New York City. He got an urgent message through the National Council of Indian Affairs that somebody needed to meet him. So he is running at 93 miles per hour, according to the radar gun of the bored cops who clock him. That's a lot. This reminded me of our previous, not specifically a speedster, fast X-Men character, that being Adam X. But I looked, and in X-Men Volume 2, number 39, Adam X was only running at 40 miles per hour, give or take. So, uh, sorry Adam, Warpath is faster. Once again, you're overshadowed. I wonder how that works legally, whether the, the speed limits that you see on roads are just vehicular or therefore anything being propelled in any way down that road. I don't know. It's like those people who were trying to be badasses in middle school saying that because they took karate, their hands had to be registered as lethal weapons. Maybe Warpath has to be legally registered as a car. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game for that. Now, whoever needed to see him, this is someone named Risque, greets him by throwing a car at him, kissing him, then fleeing. This is not a good way to introduce yourself. Okay, but is it risque? Like, I understand it's spelled R-I-S-Q-U-E, but knowing X-Force being X-Force, I kind of always figured it was just supposed to be a weird spelling of risk. No, I, I, I would I would assume it's risque. I, I, I guess so. I mean, is she particularly risque? She's mostly seen in silhouette here. Maybe she's risque under other circumstances. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a name. I don't know, man. Maybe it's Riskue, like barbecue. What what confuses me more than her name is is her sound effect. Oh, right, because she has, like, I guess she has gravity powers, which is how she's able to lift up a crunched-up car. Well, and to catch the one that, that Warpath throws at her. Yeah, and, and the sound effect is, what is it, Strig? Yep, Strig. Strig. 
I mean, hey, to their credit, like, it's always nice seeing a new sound effect, and I'm pretty sure I've never seen Strig before. Yeah, but you generally want, you generally want a sound effect that's gonna evoke a sound. I think that's just what her powers sound like. Someone calmly saying the word Strig. The only, the only member of the team who's doing pretty well, actually, no, there are two, there are two, because Caliban is hanging out with Sunspot, and Sunspot is hanging out fairly literally. He is meditating upside down midair. Which is an Ascani thing that's been established before. Why is it an Ascani thing? I don't know. Adds years to your life, which may be why Keith Richards can no longer be killed by conventional weaponry. Reminds me of a place. But we don't have time for Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, because we have questions from listeners. Rumbler Fumbler asks on Tumblr. Oh, that's really fun to say. Good, because they've sent us a lot of questions. Besides playing baseball and going to the mall, what do you think are the X-Men's favorite group leisure activities? Well, we know for a fact that the New Mutants watched a bunch of TV together. And talking about New Mutants characters, or at least one and their associate, uh, I bet that Doug and Kitty, after they got done programming every day, were super into the shitty 80s home version of Laser Tag, like Laser Tag with a Z. We've also seen both the New Mutants and the X-Men um, have campfire nights. Let's see, uh, Beast canonically likes to get stoned and watch Gumby, and it's really easy to imagine the original five watching cartoons as a group. Okay, cartoons in the 60s, so that would be like a bunch of that old Hanna-Barbera, which was fun, but bad. But I did also look it up, and Mighty Mouse, which was surprisingly clever and satirical in its pop culture and not pop culture references, was around during the 60s. I feel like Beast would have been obsessed with Mighty Mouse. Rocky and Bullwinkle was definitely on the air that I think it was from, like, the late 50s to the mid-60s, so I'm gonna go ahead and put that on the list, too, because that was fun. That was a good show. It was a really good show, and years later, the X-Babies would reference it with their bowdlerized version of Wally and the Wizard. It all comes together. Hey. Huh. There's theater, of course. I mean, uh, apparently, though, only horny plays about animal people, because we've seen Storm and Bishop seeing cats, and then Beast taking most of the O5, but not Bobby, but plus Psylocke, to go see dogs. We've also seen some team members go to the ballet together. We know that um, that Beast and, and Emma Frost are opera buddies, and... Um, oh, as far as theater, we, we know it's not it's not just weird horny animals, because we've we've seen multiple characters reference having seen Dear Evan Hansen. I don't even know what that is. Uh, it's a Broadway musical that's not about horny cats, as far as I know. Are you sure? Read between the lines, dude. As theater goes, I feel like Cypher would be really obsessed with Pippin, and he would be unable to explain to the rest of the New Mutants why. Are you kidding? No, no, that is 100% a like Bobby DaCosta show. Oh, yeah, good point. Very good point. I feel like Generation X probably hung out at record stores all the time, although based on at least the music that I was buying in that era, they were probably mostly buying cassettes, a.k.a. possibly the worst method of portable music. They were pretty bad. I mean, they were fun. I spent a lot of great time with cassettes, but God, they would break if you even looked at them funny. And then you had to rewind and flip them over, and if it was the wrong part, like, good luck actually finding the song you were looking for. And by that point, it would have fallen apart again. Oh, man. Or you, your your tape deck would just screw up and completely destroy them. Do you remember Kasingles? I mainly remember that it's fun to say Kasingle. I remember them existing. I don't remember having had contact with any. 
I got three singles of popular songs from the girl I was kind of sort of dating at my bar mitzvah. Oh. Green Day, Alanis Morissette, and Sheryl Crow, I think. Huh. Relationship didn't work out, but those singles were fun. When I think of your musical taste, those are certainly the three bands that I think of. Listeners, they are not the three bands I think of. I was actually briefly really into Green Day uh, right around then. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Is there an explanation for why Magneto continues to go by Eric Lencher instead of Max Eisenhart these days? So, as it was retcons a while back, Eric Lenger is not Magneto's real name. His real name is Max Eisenhardt. That was the name given to him by his family and his family's last name. Eric Lenger was an alias that he later used. I mean, I think the simplest answer to this question is because Eric Lenger is the name that he uses in the movies. Yeah, pretty much that. It's certainly way more well-known, to the point where I was very surprised when they decided to give him a different name in Magneto Testament. Although I guess it makes sense, because Eric Lenger is specifically a Sinti Romani name. Apologies if I mispronounced that. The internet was not very helpful on that front. That was eventually the retcon, that he had paid someone to create that identity for him when he wanted to get away from the people who were chasing him, after he killed a bunch of folks when they killed his daughter Anya. Fair enough. The only thing I can think of, if you want an actual story explanation, which I'm not sure that there really is a good one, is that Max's past, Magneto's past, when he was in a concentration camp, not only is that a very painful time, but it's a very personal time, and he doesn't strike me as a person who would really want anybody to get to see any part of him that was vulnerable. There's another simpler explanation that I think is worth considering, and that is the fact that he's made it really clear that he thinks of Magneto as his real name. So... I think it's pretty fair to assume that the main factor in his human name choices is, at this point, convenience. He uses the ones he needs to for expediency, but they're really not how he thinks of himself, so it's, it's, they're pretty much tools to get from point A to point B. You know, that makes sense. It also makes sense why he said his real name was Magnus for a while, because it kind of sounds the same. Also, it sounds cool. Speaking of cool people. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support give the extremely cool people who subscribe at them acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. And today, the microphone goes to the recently resurrected Sebastian Shaw. Your training is complete, X-Force, and your mother Tessa and I couldn't be more proud. Your target is... What is this interruption, Heather Furrow? Are you jealous of my villain, I I mean, hero, Scar? No, you're wondering why your team is called X-Force when my name is Shaw. It stands for extra wealth and power, of course. Now silence your impertinence and listen to this briefing. As I said, our strike force is now combat ready, and your goal is to- Another interruption? Is your purple and yellow outfit that doesn't match mine at all chafing, Matis Allen? Ah, you're wondering why we're allied with the burning skeleton murder man if we're supposed to be good guys. Obviously, Holocaust is a hero as well. Look at how his skull face is smiling. Anyway, your mission is to capture my son Shinobi using as much force as you deem necessary. His patricide has failed, which means it's time for me to give him the talk. I don't want to hear anyone with my last name asking any more questions about Nakey time. 
That's just embarrassing. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the refugees of the Age of Apocalypse continue to make a big damn mess. But not as big a mess as the Herald of Onslaught. <laughs>